Uh, hey, uh, my name is Paul. Like Sam said, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 12. Um, yeah, I just want to echo the things that Sam said. We, it has been such a joy. I've been, I've been at Heritage now about a year and a half, and in that year and a half, just to get to know Sam, get to know his heart, and for our churches to continue to just think and dream about ways we can partner and ways we can uh, just, with arms locked, uh, battle for the kingdom in Southern Oregon together. Uh, Sam has sharpened me, and I've uh, just, I love what God is doing at Philippi Church. We, we are a big fan of the things God is doing here in Grants Pass, and we thank you uh, for the partnership, and thanks for the opportunity just to even be here today. You know, I, I was thinking about preaching. It was funny. I was just prayed over about this. It's, it's interesting. The longer I've been in ministry, it's like 22 or 23 years or something like that now. I can remember a day in my life when I knew I was going to be teaching at something. It's a youth group or a camp, and I just couldn't wait to get up. I just had so much to say, and I was like chomping at the bit. I just wanted to get to that point in the service where I got to preach. Um, and I think about it now, it's like I have, with such fear and trembling, I take, the, I take the pulpit. It's just like my heart is just so different. And you're just so, the longer you walk with God and the bigger he gets, the smaller you get and the more your inadequacies are made known to you. And the, just with fear and trembling. You guys came here today to, to worship the living God. This God we sung about, the God that's going to be depicted in our text today in an amazing way. Is we, is we have this just Christ-centered passage today. And... and and we were praying before the service, and just the ridiculous, it's just so ridiculous that our God takes faulty folks, these little clay vessels, and in and through our meager offerings. I got this pathetic transcript. It's pathetic. I've worked on it, but it's pathetic. But he is not, and just that he allows us to gather and, and pursue him together, and that he allows a, a screw-up like me to stand on this stage this morning is incredible. It's incredible to me. Would you pray with me? Father, I just, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to gather here with the saints in Grants Pass at Philippi. God, I pray that as we open up your word today, that God, we, God, by your spirit, we would see the things you want us to see. And God, by your spirit, our ears would be opened up to hear the things you want us to hear. And God, by your spirit, would you soften our hearts to respond in obedience to the things you desire for us to respond in obedience in. And God, if we're here today and there's sin in our life that you need to bring conviction, God, I pray that you would bring conviction by your spirit. And that, God, we would be led to a contrite heart, a confession, repentance. And all these things, God, we ask that you would be glorified. Meet us in this place this morning. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we, we started chapter 12 last week. And, and as Tam, Sam taught through chapter 12, he's taught, you taught here last week, right, Sam? Yeah, and it was a passage that ended with uh, the cornerstone text, which Jesus is speaking about. It's Psalm 118, he is the stone that the builders rejected, and he has become the cornerstone. And as we were looking at this text this last week, Sam and I and, and Kathy and some other folks from, from, from Heritage, as we were studying this passage, it just became so clear that the people we're going to see in our text, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the scribes, the religious authority of the day, the, heart, the, the, the posture of their heart, after Jesus indicted them in the previous passage, the posture of their heart was one that says, you will not rule over us. They're just screaming that to Jesus. You will not 
rule over us. And as we see this series of three questions in our text today, you're going to see these three questions that these, that these different religious groups are asking of Jesus, but the questions are really a way for them to get into a posture where they can tell Jesus, you be damned. You will not rule over us. And so what I want to do today is I, I, I normally would read the whole text up front, but since it's a rather long text, I just want us to read through four sections of Scripture today. And we'll teach through each section. We're going to see, we're going to see four questions that are being asked in our passage today. Can I fix that? I'm sorry if that keeps doing that. Popping, is that distracting? Okay. I'm sorry, guys. Is it? Is it can I? Should I? What a... Just kidding. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, you're going to see three things today. You're, you're going to see uh, uh, you're going to see four questions being asked. But the first three questions are going to come from different religious authorities. You're going to see a question being asked of Jesus. You're going to see Jesus answer that question straight up, and then you're going to see Jesus point that question askers to a higher or greater truth. We're going to see that that pattern repeated three times. A question's asked, it's answered by Jesus, and then a greater truth is highlighted by him. And then the text ends with Jesus asking a question of his own. So as I was thinking about this idea of a greater truth, I, was, I, was, you know, I, was, I came here with my daughter and my grandson today. I've been really thinking about her a lot lately. My daughter, uh, she, uh, she has been raised to be an athlete. We, my wife and I, we, we were athletes way, way, way back in the day. And all of our kids have been raised to be athletes. And though we tried really hard as parents not to let sports be like the primary identifier of identity, because I really struggled with that when I was a young man. Sports defined me, and who I was as an athlete defined me, and I found my worth in and through that. And so we tried really hard as parents not to instill that into our kids, to see sports as a, as a blessing, as a benefit, as an opportunity to glorify God. But you know when you're young and you're talented and you have athletic opportunity, it's really hard not to let that dominate your whole vision, to kind of be your whole, the whole way you view the world through that lens, the way you view your, your worthiness or your, your, your validity is through that lens. And so my, my daughter, Abigail, you know, she was a, just a very gifted athlete very early on. And so all through high school, she was this very highly decorated, elite-level athlete, ended up being a two-sport uh, scholars, uh, scholarship college athlete, went off, and then through life's craziness, suddenly Abby is a mother, and I've watched my daughter go from this athlete who was in college, and that's just sort of her worldview is dominated by being an athlete. And then God blessed her with this amazing little son, my grandson Wilson. And I've watched my daughter go through this transformation that happens through just the gift of, of feeling a life grow inside you and birthing this beautiful human child. And, and the maturity that that brought through my daughter. And, and we thought when she had Wilson that, okay, the athletic season of your life is over and we're going to move on to other things. But after Abby became a mom and we, we moved to Medford, Oregon, and she was just like seeing life through a much grander lens, the lens of, of motherhood, uh, her vision was forced to get bigger. And then by God's grace, he allowed her to be a, an athlete again. And over the last year, it's been so interesting to watch her be an athlete when her identity is not wrapped into what she does as an athlete. She runs track at Southern Oregon University. And it's been so awesome to compare the 18-year-old Abigail with the 21-year-old Abigail. And to watch the 18-year-old Abigail, who, who's, whose identity was really connected to who she was as an athlete and who others said she was as an athlete, to see this mom who loves Jesus, who wants to honor him with her life, who's building a future for her son, and who, by the way, gets to do some sports along, along the way. Can I brag for a real quick second? She just got back yesterday from Nationals. My daughter is a four-time All-American this year in track and field. Isn't that amazing? Sorry, Abby. Um, 
But the idea was her vision was small. Imagine you're looking through a, a telescope. And if you're looking through a telescope and you're looking at something right in front of you and it takes up the entire viewfinder, the whole, your whole entire vision is this thing, that small thing that's right in front of you. But if you lift the telescope up and it opens up the landscape, you see the big grand views, you see the bigger things. And in, 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 the, in the picture here today is these different men are coming to Jesus. They have this issue that is dominating their worldview. They have an issue that is at the center of what they dialogue about, the center of how they see themselves in the world. It is the premier issue in their life. And so the first people we see are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Beginning in chapter 13, they come to Jesus and they have a question about Rome. Now the Herodians and the Pharisees were on opposite sides of the spectrum when it came to their issues with Rome. But that's the question they asked Jesus. It's dominating their worldview. It's a small thing, but it's dominating their worldview. When we get to the second section of Scripture, we see these, fair, or we see these Sadducees, or these rich, powerful men. And they ask this question of Jesus, and they're talking about the resurrection and the resurrection of the dead. It was this issue that they had a very particular view on, and it was one of the primary issues that defined them as a people. And they bring that small issue to Jesus. And then when we get to the scribes in the third section, the scribes are asking a question of Jesus about the law. And for a scribe, their entire worldview, their entire life was dominated by how they viewed the law and how to apply the law. And so let's open up. Let's look here. Beginning in verse 12, or verse 13 here of chapter 12. Let's read the first, let's read it verse 17. And they sent him some of the Pharisees, and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are, now, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, I put me to the test. Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And when they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the, thing, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And so I think about these Herodians, and these Pharisees, they, they were opponents politically, kind of on the opposite ends of the spectrum. I heard someone say about them one time that Herodians and Pharisees, them teaming up together to come to Jesus with this trap, this, this orchestrated uh, d trap designed to get him, the Herodians and the Pharisees working together are sort of like PETA and the NRA coming together for a common good. They just did not come together. They just didn't. It's like Biden and Trump coming together. They just were not allies, but their mutual hatred of Jesus makes odd bedfellows. First thing I would encourage you to write down, the first question that we see if you're a note taker, we see simply a question about Rome's Caesar. That's what they're asking. They're asking a question about Rome's Caesar. And if you look at the Herodians and the Pharisees, we were introduced to them all the way back in chapter 3, verse 6. When Jesus was doing his ministry in Galilee, 
And, and I think he'd healed a, a man's hand on the Sabbath. And, and, and he kind of, they kind of reached the end of themselves way back in the early part of the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. And we read back in Mark chapter 3 that the Herodians and the Pharisees began to plot for how they might destroy Jesus. So this is a long time coming. These political opponents coming together for their mutual desire to see Jesus destroyed. So who were the Herodians? We've got to do a little history here. The Herodians were Jews who aligned with King Herod. For, for political expediency, they, they, were, they were sympathetic of Rome because Herod was sympathetic of Rome. And, and most of these Herodians would have been wealthy. They would have had power. Uh, this pro-Herod approach for them was seen as sort of being anti-Jewish. They were sort of seen like traitors to their own people. And I even read some commentators this week who believed that Herodians held to a certain view that even like King Herod's throne was going to be the throne of the Messiah. And so they're teaming up here with the Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? Now, you guys have heard that phrase. You know who Pharisees are. But when it comes to the Herodians who were sort of in bed with Rome, the Pharisees hated Rome. They were anti-Rome. They saw Rome as a threat to the purity of Israel. And they had a very specific and particular set of, of theological convictions that identified them and set them apart. But both groups have come together here to ask this question. Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? And so Jesus, he, he's got to make a decision on how he's going to answer this. They think to have him trapped. And the fact that both sides of the political spectrum on how both sides view Rome are there, they, they, they think they got him. If Jesus says that they should pay taxes, then he's seen as someone who's in bed with Rome, and, and then the Pharisees can come after him. If Jesus says that they shouldn't pay taxes, then he is revolting against Caesar, and the Herodians can come after him. In their mind, they had him, but Jesus offers an answer that surprises them when he answers their question. If you look at verse 15 and 16 and, and 17, he asks them to bring a denarius, and they bring a denarius to him, and he looks at this and he says, whose inscription is on this coin? And they said it was Caesar's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And, and Mark tells us that they marveled at him. Now on this denarius, on this Roman coin, there would have been an inscription in Latin. It would have said, Tiberius Caesar... Divi Augustus Philius, which means Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Caesar, the, the, the emperor of Rome, had this claim of divinity. And so Jesus answers the question. So what's the answer? Well, he says something pretty simple. He says, listen, belonging to the kingdom of Jesus does not mean you have exemption from the kingdoms in which we currently live. So pay your taxes. And I know this, this, this little bit of section has been used as proof text for all sorts of conversations about politics. And so Jesus answers very basically, hey, listen, just because you belong to the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean that you are exempt from being a part of the kingdoms in which you currently live, so pay your taxes. Answers the question. We see a question, we see an answer. But he doesn't stop with the answer. There's a greater truth. So Jesus looks beyond their question and he looks at a much greater reality that they are just simply missing. They're so busy trying to trap Jesus and, and argue about politics and positioning themselves, they don't see the greater picture. So Jesus looks at a greater truth. And what he asks them, is, and the thing he's wanting to get at, is he's wanting to ask them, like, what belongs to God? You're worried about what the government gets and what the government doesn't get and what sort of partnership or relationship we should have with the government. But there's a much greater thing you're missing. What ultimately belongs to God? The coin was created with an inscription and an image of Caesar. So give the coin to Caesar. You, Jesus is saying, hearkening back to Genesis 1, you are made with the image of God on you. 
So give yourself unto God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and you, an image bearer of creator God, you are to give your whole selves to God as an act of worship. Stop concerning yourself so deeply with political outcomes and political maneuvering. Give yourselves to God. This is the greater truth, and it dwarfs the original question. You belong to God. You bear his image. Your life is not your own. As you think about that, as you think about your life and my life, what say did you and I have in our birth? What say did you and I have in our genetic makeup? What say did you and I have in the gifts and the abilities that God has given us? We have been made in the image of God to be given back to God as an act of worship. Jesus has good answers to the questions about taxes, but he's far more interested in, in who gets you. You know, I was talking about this with our, our other pastors at Heritage this morning. We were texting about the awful shooting that took place in Texas this last week. Just the heart-wrenching, devastating, brutal massacre of innocent children. And it happens all too often. And we were talking about how gross it is that within minutes of a tragedy like that, you begin to see politicians on both sides of the political aisle positioning themselves, trying to leverage an awful thing for political gain. And we just see the God of this world, power and political positioning. And it's like, why can't we just lament? Why can't we just sit in the ashes? Why can't we give ourselves as the body of Christ holy to these people, to minister to them, to be parables of Jesus, to care? so tempting to drop our eyes down and look at the small thing and miss the greater truth. But the greater truth here is that you and I belong to God. We bear his image. Our life is not our own. Jesus said it to them then, and he says it to us today. The second question we see, verses 18 through 27, we see a question about the resurrection of the dead. We see a question about the resurrection of the dead. Let's read verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring, last of all the woman also died. Verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pause there. This second big question comes from the Sadducees. Interestingly enough, it's about the resurrection of the dead, which they did not believe in. 
They were, in essence, the Sadducees, in essence, were like annihilationists. They believed when you died, you just ceased to be. They didn't believe in any sort of angels or demons or afterlife. They had a very unique and particular view. Sadducees were extremely powerful and wealthy men in this time. The high priest was a Sadducee. It was a political party that was very dominant and in power at the time. And so these are the men that are coming to Jesus to ask this question about a doctrine they don't even believe in. And they ask this question that's got an incredible pretext. I mean, a true stretch. Seven husbands. I mean, what a, the sort of mental mathematics you have to do to even understand that question. A woman has seven husbands. Each husband dies. They're all from the same family, all from the same, they're all brothers. And this question about kinsman redeemer. And they're trying to get Jesus in a trap. So they ask him, who's going to be the husband in the resurrection? And Jesus just blasts these guys. Now, the, the Sadducees, one of the unique things that they believed they were literalists when it came to their interpretation of Scripture. They held, they held a very high regard for Scripture, and in their minds, they were the true, the, the, like the biblicists of the day. They, they, they had this literal, they didn't hold a high regard for oral tradition, which set them apart from the Pharisees, but the Sadducees were very much men of the word, they thought. And, and the way in which you literally interpret Scripture is very important to them. And that was one of the things they wore on their chest as a badge of honor. So what does Jesus say? The reason you are wrong is because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Wow, what an indictment on those men. Have you not read in the book of Moses, he questions, as he quotes Exodus 3? And then he finishes by this very Donald Trump-esque quote, you are quite wrong. You are quite wrong. I love it. it is, he just hammers these guys. And uh, Jesus offers an answer to their question. He just simply says, hey, there's not going to be marriage in the resurrection. So your question with all this pretext is something you don't even believe in. The simple answer is there's, we're not given to marriage in the, re, in the resurrection. The implication additionally is, by the way, Sadducees, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. So you're wrong on your conviction. I'm thinking of what Jesus taught in the gospel of John chapter 5 verse 29. Jesus says, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus taught about the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. For those of us that are in Christ, it's a resurrection unto life. Jesus went on to say in John 6, verse 39, that this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so there's this glorious reality of resurrection life that Jesus is talking about for the believer. When they rise from the dead, he says, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage, but will be like the angels in heaven. So he doesn't stop with the basic answer about the resurrection. Jesus gives a greater truth. That was dominating the worldview of these Sadducees. But Jesus says, your vision is way too small. He takes their little telescope and he lifts it up to a much greater truth. He is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Look at verse 26. Notice how Jesus answers this question again with Scripture. He answered it with Scripture earlier when he alluded to Genesis 1 and 2. Second question, he goes right to Scripture, Exodus chapter 3. He's answering their question with Scripture. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. In other words, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, when he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he talks about them as if they're living. 
They had been long dead at this point, but God says he is still their God. God is the God, not of corpses, but of the living. And so as he speaks of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as being with him, he is their God. They must be alive. The big issue is, is not this life, and these men were focused more on this life or the Sadducees. The big issue here, the bigger issue, the greater truth is resurrection life. It's eternal life. This life is a breath, the scriptures tell us. What matters is where we spend the next one. And even though there's no marriage in heaven, don't let that be troubling. I heard it said one time that the, the most beautiful and most intimate experience of human relationship that we can exist on this side, that exists on this side of glory is the marriage relationship. It is the naked and not ashamed relationship. It's the equally yoked, one flesh union relationship. It is this picture of, it is the ultimate picture of human intimacy that we experience on this side of glory. And we live in a broken world where there is shame and regret and embarrassment and wounds and jealousies and challenges. And anyone who's been married understands how hard sometimes pursuing meaningful intimacy can be in marriage. Sometimes it feels easier just to give up because it's so hard, because you have to overcome so many things and mistakes and failures, and you've got this tape recorder in your mind reminding you of all these things, and pursuing one flesh union, pursuing one flesh intimacy in marriage is so worth the fight, but it is a fight. It is hard. It is challenging. Can you imagine what human relationship will look like in glory when there's no shame, there's no regret, there's no sin, there's no jealousy, there's no self-image issues, there's no former baggage that plagues your mind, can you imagine how incredible human connection will be in glory? And though Jesus doesn't dive into it here, the implication is like, you don't have a clue the beautiful, intimate, communal, Christ-centered glory that will happen. The, the, the intimacy that will be present in glory is so far exceeds the most beautiful and intimate marriage you can possibly imagine. It's going to be so incredible. Jesus is saying that resurrection life is such a great and glorious reality. There will be such joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. And so the, the greater answer is, if you think about it, if you think about the challenges of this life, I mean, if we have no resurrection hope, if we have no hope of heaven, if that isn't in our, our, our view, if we, don't, if we don't have the belief that, that there will be a day when we stand in front of a holy, sovereign, redeeming God and he will reach down with his divine thumb and he will wipe every tear from our eye and there'll be no more sorrow, suffering, crying, or pain. All those things will be gone forever and he will make all things new. If that's not a hope that we have, if that doesn't drive us, then how do we process the, the, the gravest of, of, of pains in the moment? Walk with someone who has lost a child. My sister has lost two children. Walk with someone who has lost a child without the hope of a redeeming God who will one day wipe every tear. I mean, what Jesus is saying here is massive. We, we, we quibble and we fight and we argue and we scheme and we position and we work and we plan to create a name for ourselves, a place for ourselves. We work 60, 70 hours a week to buy a house and buy a car and build a life and the moths will eat it, the rust will corrode it, thieves will steal it. It means nothing. And what Jesus is saying to these men, he's like, you guys, your vision is so small. You want your power and your position in the Sanhedrin? You want, your, you want to have influence and you want to be a big deal? It's going to last a nanosecond. A puff of air, it is gone. The focus is in the wrong place. There's a much 
greater truth that Jesus is saying here. So two questions are asked of Jesus, one about Rome, one about the resurrection. He answers it, but then he points his listeners to a much greater truth, both them then and us today. Third question, verses 28 through 34. It's a question about the greatest commandment. Let's pick up in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love the Lord, or you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. In this third question, it seems less sinister, doesn't it? It seems like a true quest for truth, perhaps. It seems like a sincere question, at least. Now, scribes were lawyers. They were experts in religious law. They were involved in politics, but they were chiefly concerned with right handling and correct interpretation of the law. They, they drew up legal documents. They studied, tran, tran, they studied and transcribed the law. They offered interpretation and commentary of the law. And so the scribe approaches Jesus, and he asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Another 613 commandments in the life of the scribe. And as he asks this question, he's asking it through a filter of all these commands that were heavy on his heart. And he wants to know, how do I rank these? How do I follow these rules? How do, I, how do I live in obedience to all that you want of me, Lord? And so much has been stripped of Israel by this point. Rome's occupation had taken them of their monarchy. It had taken them of their national pride. The occupation of Rome was brutal. It was a heavy yoke on the back of the Israelites. Kind of all they had at this point. Without independence, without national pride, all they really had was the law. It was this... It was this reminder of this once great heritage that they came from, and so they held on to it. There was, in fact, many would say there was an inordinate significance placed upon the law. Their national identity was wrapped up into it, without a king or no power. The law was this symbolic thing. It was this object of pride for the Israelites. And so this man wants a command. He wants to know, how do I, how do I just, I want to know what you want me to do. God, what do you want me to do? What's the most important thing for me to do? And I'll do it. And the problem with that question is it's not focused on God. It's focused on the obedience of the man. God, what do you want me to do? And I'll do it. Have you guys ever done that Henry Blackaby study from forever ago, Knowing God? Where he talks about, you know, the question should not be, God, what do you want me to do? The question should be, God, where are you at work? And how can I just join you in the work you're already doing? Because it's about him and it's not about us. And so this man wants a command. But Jesus gives him an answer. But he doesn't stop at the answer. He, he gives a greater truth. And, and as he answers the question, he doesn't answer immediately with, he quotes the Shema in, in Deuteronomy 6. He goes right to Scripture for a second time. And Jesus opens his mouth. He, he doesn't offer a command. He gives him the Shema, which is a statement. 
It's a statement, it's a definitive Old Testament statement about who God is, found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. The most important is this, Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, an inward-focused moralism is not what God wants. I'll say that again. An inward-focused moralism is not the chief objective of God in your life and in my life. This scripture, the Shema, is the great self-revelation of God to his people. God had delivered his people from captivity in Egypt. He led them across the Red Sea into Mount Sinai. And as he is communicating with his people at Mount Sinai, he reminds them that he sought them out in their captivity, that he rescued them, that he delivered them, that he alone is their God. And after their deliverance from Egypt, God on Mount Sinai, when he gives this command to Moses, when he talks to the Shema over, when he speaks the Shema over Moses, he's revealing himself to his people. He's revealing his character. He's revealing his ways. He's revealing his law. And he does this in order that the people he saves might reflect him to the world. So the picture is this. The picture is a redeemed people putting their hand to the work of redemption as ambassadors of God's redemption. The picture is the redeemed people of God putting their hand to the work of redemption as ambassadors of the God of redemption. And the goal of his redeeming work doesn't, isn't to make more moral people by his love, God makes you and me new people. We are born again. We are regenerated by the power of his spirit. And it's his love that saves us. And so the, so the implication as we interact with the Shema and this great commandment that Jesus speaks over this scribe is that if God loved you when you weren't lovable, but he, but he, but he loved you, and by his love he redeemed and saved you, well then the only right response is to love him with all of yourself to give your whole self to him, going back to the first answer to the first question, give back to God what is God's. The only right response to a God who, who redeems us and saves us by his love is to give ourselves back to him as an act of love, as an act of worship. And secondarily, if God loved you when you weren't lovable, how can you not love your neighbor who is not lovable? How can you and I ever think more highly of ourselves and look down our nose at someone else who seems unlovable? So Jesus answers the question, to love God, but then he points to this greater truth. From all of you, love, from all of you, love with all of yourselves. There's this picture of mind, body, soul, spirit. This, this wholeness of the self is called to love God and love others. And a genuine love for God and others is this thing that has to flow from the wholeness of who we are as human beings. And, and we were looking at this as we, as we sat in, in our study on Tuesday, looking at the, 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 the words that are used here for soul, mind, body, spirit, our strength, rather. It's this picture of like every ounce of your being. There's not, we hold nothing back. We give all of ourselves to God as an act of worship, as we love others and as we love him. And so there's these three questions about Rome, about resurrection, about the law. And the Pharisees and the Herodians are left marveling. The Sadducees are silenced. The scribe, along with everyone else, it says they dare not ask any more questions of Jesus. And, and there's this interesting thought that, that Pastor Jeremy from Heritage kind of put this on our radar this week. And it's, it's interesting to think about when did this conversation take place? Well, this took place during Passover week in Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish custom of Passover, there would be uh, for every household a Passover lamb. And the law 
prescribed that they would get this Passover lamb, this lamb without blemish that would be sacrificed, and they would smear the blood on the doorpost and on the side of the door as this image of, of, of atonement. And part of the law required that the lamb be brought in to live with the family for four days. It was a period of inspection to assure that the lamb was without blemish. So when the sacrifice took place, it, was, it had been inspected, and it was a, it was a, it was a uh, spotless lamb. And so as, as you look at these interactions of Jesus in Jerusalem, the, week, the, the, week, the Passion Week, Passover week, it's as if Jesus, the Lamb of God, is being inspected. And as we think of the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the scribes asking these piercing questions of Jesus, it's as if there's an examination taking place to see if he really is faultless as the Lamb of God. And at the end of the interaction with these different groups, we, we read that they, they marveled and they dared not ask any more questions because Jesus, the Lamb of God, has undergone inspection and he's been found faultless. And he will be the ultimate sacrifice. Interesting way to think about this interaction. And then as this takes place, there's one more question to be asked, and it's in a question that Jesus himself asks, and that's the first thing we see in verses 35 through 37. It's a question about King David's Lord. Jesus asks a question about King David's Lord. Look at verses uh, 35 through 37 here, as Jesus quotes Psalm 110. And Jesus taught them, and Jesus taught in the temple, and he said, how could the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And a great throng heard him gladly. And so Jesus asks a question of those present. He's teaching in the temple. And he asks a question, and it's kind of a riddle. And, and this is a huge question for these men that are gathered there on that day. And the answer and the implication of this question is sort of the key that unlocks everything else Jesus has set up to this point. You might even be able to say that the implication or the, 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 the reality of what Jesus is about to teach, what he teaches by quoting this verse, is the key that kind of unlocks the gospel of Mark. He invokes the name of David. How can the scribes say that if the Christ is the son of how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and then Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Now listen, David was the greatest king who ever lived in Israel's history. It's interesting that we heard Caesar mentioned earlier, and now we're having the name of King David invoked at the end of the passage. Our passage is bookended by these two powerful leaders. The most powerful leader on the planet at that time was Caesar, and the most powerful leader in the history of Israel was King David, and there's these two leaders that are being invoked in this question about authority and about who is Jesus, and David was this great king. He was a symbol of the golden age of national glory, but there was just one problem for these Israelites on that day. David had been dead for 900 years. And so as they sit there under the oppressive thumb of occupying Rome, as they sit there demoralized nationalistically, hoping for some sort of redemption, hoping for militaristic, nationalistic strength and power and conquer, as they're there with all these questions, Jesus invokes the name of David. And these people are hopeful that the son of David would take Israel back and would make Israel great again. 
After fielding these questions and pointing to greater truths, Jesus, he now asks a question that points his audience to the ultimate reality. Not just a greater truth, this is the ultimate truth. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And again, for the fourth time, a question is answered with the use, with the use of scripture. Psalm 110.1 is what he quotes right here. And Jesus is saying, in your wildest dreams, whether it's a Herodian or a, or a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe, when those men would cook up their wildest dreams for global dominance, whatever it was they were hungering after or thirsting after or scheming after or dreaming after, their wildest dreams were far too small. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In this psalm, David sees the Lord in heaven, Yahweh. So David is looking at Yahweh, the Lord, in heaven. And, and they're talking to another mysterious person, the one who David calls my Lord. And so God says to the one David calls my Lord, so David is calling another person in the psalm my Lord, to that person who David says my Lord, the father says, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies under, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies under my feet. And so the person that David is seeing in this psalm is not his son. It's not a subordinate. It's not even a co-equal. The person who David is seeing in this psalm is the one who will sit at God's right hand. The person who David is seeing in this psalm is not just someone who's going to be king over Israel. It's not just someone who's going to be king over Rome. But this is someone who will be lord over the entire universe forever. It's only that kind of king of kings that will have the sort of wisdom that we see displayed by Jesus in this passage to see the sorts of things that Jesus sees, to have the sorts of authority that he has. And so this is the ultimate truth. And for these men on that day who had asked those questions, Jesus positioned himself in their midst as David's Lord, not David's son. And this truth, it unlocks all that has followed previously. If you think about how could Jesus calm the storms, well, he's Lord. How could he heal the sick and raise the dead and, and give the, mute the ability to speak, give sight to the blind? Well, because he's Lord. How could he be transfigured on a mountaintop? Well, because he's Lord. How could he walk on water? Well, because he's Lord. How could he, how could he maneuver around all these traps and these questions that all these men de designed to get him? Well, because he's, he's, not, he's not the son of David. He's not just a great king in Israel's lineage. He is the king. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. The audience would have understood Jesus' logic. He's asserting that he alone is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Therefore, to the Pharisee and the Herodian, Jesus is the one who put his image on you. To the Sadducee, Jesus is the Lord of heaven, who alone can talk with authority about the resurrection of the dead. To the scribe, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law, and he is the manifestation of God's love. This is the ultimate truth. And so what Mark is saying to them then, and to us today, what Mark is saying is, behold, your Lord and God, the King. And I think about you and me. For them, we know what they did, right? They plotted to kill Jesus. They, they would not have him be their Lord. They would not. But I think about you and I, and I think about, I wonder, I wonder what questions dominate your worldview. I wonder about this from the church universal. 
I wonder about this in the church local, and I wonder about this just in the lives of believers. I wonder what are the questions that we might be tempted to ask that aren't the right questions? I wonder what questions that we might bring to Jesus where he would say, ah, oh, man, your vision is so small. What are, you, what are you asking me these questions for? What personal questions? What political questions? What professional questions? Them then and us today, Jesus pointed them to a greater truth. And the greater truth he told them that he tells us today as well is like, listen, no matter what's going on in your world, no matter where you are with political frustrations, give yourself fully to God as an act of worship. No matter how hard things are in your life today, and it's hard to figure out how to put one foot in front of the other and move on till tomorrow, focus your eyes on the God of the living, who is the God of heaven. For those of you who are trying to figure out what it looks like to be obedient in this moment, and maybe your, your eyes have turned inward, Jesus modeled the force, live lives of love. Love God with all of yourself, all of your being, and love others as God would love them. And so for the Christian... For those of you gathered here today who know Jesus, application is very simple. Your life is not your own. You know that. I just want to remind you of that today. I want to encourage you to consider what it means for you to give yourself fully to God. As an image bearer of God, give to God what is God's. He is also the God of the living. And so no matter how difficult or uncertain or painful or dark or confusing life gets, this life is a puff of air. He is the God of glory, and we have hope and glory. My mother is fighting cancer right now. And if she fights cancer, she's had to have uh, almost the entirety of her left lung removed, and, and, and it, her cancer has metastasized, and she's going through chemo and all this different stuff. And it's been so encouraging for me to spend time with my mom, to hear her just, just turn her face to the sovereignty of God over her, her life and the hope that she has for all of eternity. It's like it has invoked worship in her and maturity in her. It's changed her entire worldview. Cancer does not dominate her worldview. There's a much greater vision in my mother, and that's, that's the implication for the believer here today. And, and as the object of God's eternal gracious love, may I just continue to encourage you as the church to love. Love God with the totality of who you are, with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love others with absolute and utter selflessness. You cannot outgive the giver of all good things. And I think of the seeker. If there are some of you gathered here today and you have not come to a place yet where you are ready to call Jesus Lord or believe that he was and is the son of, the God, the son of God, I think one of the knocks against the Christian faith is that you have to narrow your mind to follow Jesus. I think as we look at this passage and we look at the wisdom of Jesus, it, it's very clear that following Jesus is not mind-narrowing. It's mind-blowing. It is the key that unlocks all of life. It is the worldview that opens everything else up. It lifts our eyes up from the small, minute things to the grand, true things that gives us direction and focus, not for just this life, but for life eternal. So see the ultimate reality. There is no other leader like Jesus. And so, listen, whatever your question is, Jesus is the answer. And I think about those men on that day on that hill as they were condemning Jesus to death. I think more about the disciples that were listening to this conversation happen. It wasn't so much about the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Pharisees and the scribes. It was about these disciples that were following Jesus, watching this and learning and listening. This was Jesus really giving us his vision of discipleship. And then they would watch in just a matter of days as Jesus, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, would hang on the cross. He would shed his blood. 
And all these things that seem impossible in our own strength are impossible in our own strength. The Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, the manifestation, the embodiment of God's love has made a way. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for this text. God, I'm thankful that we can open up this book and, God, we can read your very words. And, God, I'm, I'm mindful that today on, on this on this day that, that as the men and women are in this room are gathered here, God, that we all come from just a variety of places. God, there's some here today who are in a really sweet place with you and in life and the seas are calm and they're hearing from you and responding to you and growing in you. And God, I pray that you would continue to fan that flame, that you would draw near and continue to make yourself known. God, I'm mindful of those folks here today who maybe have some very big questions that have and that are dominating their, their viewfinder. Some big issues, God, that have occupied their thoughts and their minds and, and maybe good things, real things, important things to consider. But God, would you rightly orient those things? Would you place them where they need to be in light of who you are? In light of this greater truth, this ultimate truth that Jesus, you are the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. And you're alive today. You're on the throne today. You are sovereign over all things. And so, God, would you draw our eyes to you? God, would you give us the understanding and the ability to trust and submit and surrender our very lives to you? And, God, I'm mindful of those here today who maybe have struggled with coming to you in, in utter faith. They've struggled relinquishing control of their life or letting go of, of things that are just too terrifying to let go of. God, by your spirit, I pray that you would continue to soften our hearts and open eyes and Draw men and women to yourself, God, that they might confess with their mouth that Jesus, you are Lord. And believe in their hearts, God, that you raised him from the dead. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.